Hey guys, it's Mara. And Sincere. Welcome back to another episode of Politalks. For today's episode, we are sharing the audio from the Pizza and Politics event this past Tuesday. We welcome Dr. Eddie Glaude from Princeton University, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And Melvin Rogers from Brown University, editor of the new African-American Political Thought, A Collected History. Shout out to our fantastic poli-sci faculty and work-study team for bringing these distinguished scholars to our campus. Did you, event, uh, did you attend the event, Sincere? I did. Did you, Mara? I did, too. What did you think about it? The event gave students an opportunity to watch three incredible scholars engage in an important conversation about the roles of race in the United States. I loved it. I did as well. I definitely learned a lot. Without further ado, here is How Can We Begin Again, a pizza and politics event led by Dr. Nick Bucola with Dr. Eddie Glaude and Dr. Melvin Rogers. All right. Good evening, everyone. I am so happy uh, to see all of you here uh, to join us for this conversation uh, with Melvin Rogers and Eddie Glaude. Um, this is a really special uh, night for, for me because uh, two of my favorite people, scholars, are here to talk about one of my favorite thinkers, James Baldwin. Um, and so I think this is going to be an extraordinary event. Uh, tonight, I'm just going to say uh, a couple of thank yous, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, one of our work-study students, Pedro, who's going to give you a little bit of the logistics of asking questions. Um, Eddie and Melvin are going to talk uh, for a little while, and during the course of the conversation, you can submit questions, and then we'll have a moderated Q&A um, after the, the conversation concludes. Uh, so I want to start by saying a few thank yous. So this event, uh, this this uh, sort of um, observance of Constitution Day um, is made possible by the Frederick Douglass Forum for Law, Rights, and Justice, which is uh, something that uh, we've been doing here at Linfield University for, uh, go well, at least eight years now. Um, and the Douglass Forum is, is a space, it's meant to be a, um, a, a place where we can gather, uh, whether it's on Zoom nowadays or, or together in, in a classroom together in a lecture hall, um, to reflect about uh, basic questions about uh, the rule of law, competing conceptions of justice, individual rights. And so the Douglas Forum has done that in a variety of ways over the years, and, and that work that we've done um, would not be possible without the support of, of many generous people. Um, one in particular I want, who I think is somewhere here in the vast uh, Zoom crowd uh, is Sheila Oster. Uh, Sheila and her husband, Michael Alexander, established uh, the Elliot Alexander Fund for Political Science several years ago. Um, Elliot was a student, a political science major here at Linfield, uh, and he passed away when he was a student here. And one of the things that um, Sheila and Michael wanted to do to honor Elliot's memory uh, was to promote events like this, because Elliot, when he was here, uh, he was always in the front row for an event like this. He was very, uh, just an intellectually curious young man who who loved to, to talk about politics, to listen to people talk about politics. And so uh, over the years, the Alexander Fund has made it possible for us to do do things like this. So I, if we were if we were in a room together, we would all have a rousing applause for Sheila. So Sheila, thank you so much for your generosity. Um, the Douglas Forum is also uh, fortunate to um, have uh, support from the Jack Miller Center uh, for, the, for the study of American history, uh, which provides um, you know uh, opportunities for students to get involved in reading groups and to have lectures and debates, and, and uh, especially for Constitution Day, the Miller Center 
for many years has funded um, events on college campuses, bringing Supreme Court justices to some campuses. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg at some point was uh, a Miller Center um, lecturer uh, back in the day. Um, and so the Miller Center has been supporting our Constitution Day activities for many years. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the Miller Center for their support. So uh, the Douglas Forum could not do what it does without, without folks like that. So I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to turn to Pedro first and have him tell you a little bit about the logistics of asking questions, and then I will introduce our speakers. Uh, Pedro. Uh, Pedro, we can't hear you. Can okay. you hear me? Now we can hear you. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, again, I would like to welcome everyone to our second event in our 2020 election series. Today, the Q&A process is going to be a little bit different. If you can check in the chat, we've provided you with a link that is gonna take you to a Google Slides site in which you can type in the questions for the Q&A, which we'll do after the speakers present their thoughts. So it's on the chat. You should have received the message by now. And thank you so much. We are again super excited to have Dr. Rogers and Dr. Glot joining us. Thank you, Pedro. I, I really appreciate that. Um, okay, so the, the format from here is I'm going to introduce Melvin and Eddie, and they're going to talk for a while, and, um, and we are going to go from there. And as Pedro said, feel free to submit your questions uh, along the way, and, and we'll have a, a conversation among, among all of us uh, at the conclusion of the conversation between Melvin and Eddie. I've sent out a lot of emails with biographies of these two gentlemen, um, so I won't rehearse those again. Uh, they are, their resumes are, are incredible. They're two of the leading scholars uh, in this country, in the world for that matter. Um, they, they know, uh, th there's so many things that they know, I can't possibly list them all. So I wanna say something just briefly um, by way of, of, uh, of introduction about each of them. Um, Eddie Glaude's new book. Now, Eddie Glaude has written many books. Uh, you can see some of them on the shelf behind me. Uh, in a Shade of Blue is up there. Uh, Democracy in Black, many of my students uh, read that with me in our African-American political thought class. Uh, his new book, Begin Again, is the, the basis of our conversation tonight. Um, and you've probably heard about Begin Again. It, it, was, uh, it's, it reached the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I, I just want to say that I think this book uh, is the kind of book that will stick around for a while. This is not the kind of book that's just having a moment. Um, I think this book is, is so important um, for a variety of reasons, and I just want to tell you about two. One, substantively, what Eddie's done here in, in thinking with James Baldwin about the current moment uh, I think is uh, there's so much wisdom con contained in these pages. There's so much uh, that I think you can you can read and think about, uh, and as you reflect on your responsibilities uh, as citizens each day, there's so much in this book that can inspire you, uh, that can cause you to think, can cause you to worry, uh, can generate a lot of uh, responses um, that I think are really really vital for us in this moment. I also think this book is really important in terms of how Eddie wrote it. And this is something that I suppose might come up in the conversation tonight. Um, I think this is a, a really incredible book about writing. Uh, it's about, you know, Eddie thinking about Baldwin writing and also really reflecting with the reader about his own process of writing and how he set out to write one thing and ended up writing something very different. I think there's something extraordinarily instructive about that, and um, as, as, I, as I've been saying to people, that is how we ought to write. Uh, sometimes the plan that we have is not the right one, uh, and we have to let the material guide us, and I think Eddie has done that so beautifully in this book, and so I think that will be another lasting legacy of this text. Um, 
so that's my little intro to Eddie. Uh, and then my intro to Melvin. Melvin uh, is someone who I've gotten to know over the years, uh, you know, just primarily first through reading Melvin. And whenever I read anything Melvin wrote or I heard Melvin speak, I learned so much. And Melvin is somebody who um, has, has taken such great care uh, in his work uh, about really complicated ideas. I mean, John Dewey, who's near and dear to the hearts of Eddie and Melvin, is somebody who is tough to read. Uh, but Melvin is somebody who, who takes such great care with somebody like Dewey and really, tr and really does a remarkable job at showing us just how vital these really complicated ideas are for our democratic lives. Um, and I, I wanna say Melvin has, I, I've mentioned this in all the, the blasts I've sent out about this event, Melvin has a, uh, a text coming out, a collected um, uh, edition with uh, Chip Turner at the University of Washington, African-American political thought of collected history. This is going to be uh, such an enormous contribution to the field of African-American political thought. It is this massive tome, I don't know, 900 pages or something, Melvin. It's, it's the kind of thing that could be a doorstop or a weapon. Um, it is going to be a contribution to the field uh, going forward. As long as the world exists, this will be the text to go to to try to get guidance on how we think through this, this extraordinary tradition. And I want to just put in a plug for a book that Melvin's working on. And this is, I thought this was the most uh, you know, uh, honest thing I could say in my, in my introduction to Melvin is um, I was asked to comment on a book that Melvin's working on, which he, you know, he can talk about in our Q&A perhaps if, uh, if it comes up, that the, the Dark and Light of Faith is the working title. And really what it is, is it's Melvin working through uh, the African-American political tradition in a way that I know, uh, based on the bits I've seen of it and the plan that Melvin has, will be extraordinary. And the way I put it uh, to somebody recently was, I said, if you, you know, for political theorists watching, uh, they'll know this book, Politics and Vision by Sheldon Wolin. This book is, is just one of those masterful books where you, you get this opportunity to, to sit with the scholar as he, as he takes you on this journey through this incredible tradition. And in Wolin's case, he's taking you through the kind of classics that my students have all read and great political thinkers, Plato, Machiavelli, and so on and so forth. And it's the kind of book that you can just keep going back to. And, and it's just this, this vast, uh, you know, set of resources for you to help understand not only these old books, but the, the political world around us. Melvin is doing that in his new book for the African-American political tradition. That book, and I don't put too much pressure on you, Melvin, that book is going to be the equivalent of politics and vision, uh, I think, uh, in the field of African-American political thought. So I could go on about these two guys all night, but you don't want to hear from me anymore. You want to hear from them. So I'm now going to hand it over to Melvin to get the conversation started. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to see you. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, for having us. Um, so, so let me thank Nick. Let me thank uh, Linfield and all of the uh, supporters uh, for, this, uh, for this event and, and for all of you uh, tuning in and, and joining us for this, uh, for this conversation. Um, so, uh, you know, basically, uh, Eddie, I'm going to act as an, I'm going to interview you, um, <laughs> and we'll we'll have a conversation, of course. But but mm. but the but the reason why I put it in those terms is is because um, the the book is special, mm. um, and one of the things that the the um, that all of you don't know is that I, so I've read every single book that Eddie has written, and my favorite book <clears throat> was his first book, Exodus. And I think I found my new favorite book. 
And you, but you know that Exodus has been so important to yeah. me. But I think that I found my new favorite book. And, you know, and so I want us to, so there's a lot here that I want us to try to, to try to talk about. And I, and I want to try to, uh, you know, uh, ask some questions to help you put it on display for those that have not, have not read the book. Sure. And so I just, I want to begin um, in a place that I think um, is a heavy place in the book. Mm. So this is, um, we're in, for those who have the book, we're in the chapter witness. And these passages here, they sort of jump out at me. And these are passages for the audience. These are passages about trauma and history. And so on 40, I'm not going to read because I don't want to take up time, but, but I'm looking at the bottom of 40. I'm looking at the bottom, I'm looking at the top of 41. And then hold on to those pages for those of you who have them. And then I am going to read this line, which is on 43 narrating trauma fragments, how we remember. Narrating trauma fragments, how we remember. We recall what we can and what we desperately need to keep ourselves together. Much of this book is a way of helping us get access to a trauma that, we've, that we keep resisting, that we keep denying, that we keep pushing off. And when I got to these pages, I was blown over, but it wasn't until the end that I found myself going back to these pages because I was thinking to myself, this is it. These pages are an expression of what the book is trying to do to help us get in touch with our trauma. It is not only helping us to get in touch with our trauma, it is a way for you Eddie is the writer to narrate and to make sense of your own trauma alongside Baldwin making sense of his trauma. And so I, wanna, I want you to talk, I want to invite you to talk a little bit about the ways in which this book um, aspires to do um, what it, it tries to help us do in our time, what Baldwin was trying to do in his own and getting his audience and getting Americans in his time to grapple with trauma? Well, first of all, it's such a delight to be in conversation with you. Um, and that's what this will be more than an interview. Um, and I wanna thank uh, Linfield for inviting me back and brother Nick for his generosity, um, his curiosity, that, that enveloping smile of his. and. Uh, particularly thank him for his wonderful review of my book. I appreciate you, man. Um, so I'm really excited about the conversation. Let me let me jump into the to 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 an answer to the try to answer to the question. Offer an answer to the question. Um, at the heart of the Baldwin that I'm engaging is wound and trauma. And to my mind. No Name in the Street, the book he published in 1972, is the book that gives us the point of entry to that, right? This is where he's trying in some ways to narrate what has happened in this compressed period of time. And he's trying to find a form that can capture, you know, the, the wound, 
and the trauma and how it impacts memory, right? And so I found myself in the early days of writing the book, uh, in the first drafts of, of, of the chapter, you know, of, of the early chapters, trying to imitate or capture the form of No Name in the Street. And I was failing miserably. And it had everything to do with the fact that, you know, I was, I, there was, the narrative coherence was lost. I couldn't get the reader from point A to point B to point C. Because again, I was trying to model that, you know, narrating trauma fragments memory, right? And, and the reason why I was trying to model it because I was saying in our own moment, here we are in this place again. Mm -hmm. And white people have done it again. Mm -hmm. and, we've having, and we have to raise our babies and we have to worry about our children and we have to have our conversations and, and my son has to convince me that he needs to go out and protest, even though COVID is killing people, killing our people at two and a half times the rate, right? I had to figure out how to write in this moment, although COVID is later, how to write in this moment to capture our own sense of betrayal and the traumas that come with it. Because even when we feel a sense of betrayal, right, um, it's still happening to us. The videos are still coming out. And so, um, that moment in, in the second paragraph, the second line in No Name in the Street, right, the, in Take Me to the Water, Baldwin captures it. He says, much, much has been blotted out, coming back only lately in bewildering and untrustworthy flashes. And here, and then when you look at the conditional, may, may, memory, memory, all of this is framing the beginning of the text, right? I remember, I think I remember, this may have happened, I'm not sure, right? All of this is the way in which he's trying to get us to this point since Martin's death in Memphis and that tremendous day in Atlanta, something has altered in me, something has gone away. And so the anchor of Begin Again is no name in the street. And the animating elements of no name in the street a trauma and wound. And Baldwin is trying to capture that at the level of form and at the level of content. So what Begin Again tries to do is to pull that into our moment. Um, to try to tell the truth about what it means to deal with this. And what is this? That white people have done it again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, Mel? Yeah, it does. Um... So there, so there are so there are two issues that emerge for me here, um, mm. and the first of the issues is around the sort of form and writing. Um, and let, and Eddie, you tell me if it's too academic. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I was sort of struck by in reading the book, and this sort of the sort of first question here. Um, one of the, the things I was struck by in reading the book is the way in which um, the execution of the argument doesn't compromise sophistication and depth and understanding what Baldwin is trying to offer us. Mm. And, and, and that is about a way of writing. Mm. Right? Um, 
it's a it's about a way of letting go of a whole bunch of things that otherwise constrain and arrest your prose and just letting it go. So, so the first thing I, I want you to, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, folks mm -hmm. here um, and we all in one form or fashion are writers. And so, so how do we um, engage this moment um, in a way that frees us from the performances that we often have to engage in before we can get to what we want to say. That's the first thing. But, the, but I think the second thing that emerges here, and now this is a bit more, it goes in a different direction, and I think it's substantive in a different way. This passage um, that, you, that you cite, I'm working with this bold one here. Same here. I got the same. But, right, but, but this passage that you cite on 357, Mm -hmm. since Martin's death in Memphis. And in some ways, this is the, as you said, the anchor of the book. This is, this is the point around which the book revolves. And Baldwin says here, as you come down, um, one tries to treat them, and he's referring to human beings, as the miracles they are, while trying to protect oneself against the disasters they've become. Yeah. This is not very different from the act of faith demanded by all those marches and petitions while Martin was still alive. One could scarcely be deluded by Americans anymore. One scarcely dared expect anything from the great, vast, blank generality, and yet one was compelled to demand of Americans, and for their sakes, after all, a generosity of clarity and a nobility which they did not dream of demanding of themselves. <laughs> and, but this is the point where Baldwin is, is announcing that something has broken in him. Mm -hmm. And so the question here for me is that if it is the case, if this is true, and there's nowhere else for us to go because this is home, if this is true, how do we get on about the business of living in the face of this truth? In and some can ways, we, can, we, can we acknowledge it and simultaneously continue what we see folks are doing in the streets as they're sort of protesting and trying to resist uh, practices of dehumanization and domination, exclusion and the like? Yeah, yeah I think that the, the, I'll answer the second question first and then move back to, to, to the writing question. Right. In some ways, no name in the street is his answer, right? You know, after King is assassinated in 1968, Baldwin collapses. Right. Billy D. Williams says he doesn't. He didn't believe he could. He would bounce back. He was forever marked by that experience. He tries to commit suicide in '69, which the second time, right? But this mm -hmm. has something to do not only with a failed relationship, but also having everything to do with what does it mean for the country to kill, to to murder an apostle of love, right? And so, from '68 to '69. Baldwin is actually working desperately to pick up the pieces, right? To get himself, right, in a space where he can think and write and account or bear witness to what has happened, not only to those who didn't survive, but for those who did, but survived broken, as he would say, and I heard it through the grapevine. So no name in the street 
is the book that's published in 72. It's the first book published after uh, the breakdown, after King's murder. He, uh, the first manuscript, I mean, he publishes a book with Margaret Mead. There's the mm -hmm. conversation with Nikki Giovanni. There's some fugitive um, uh, journalistic pieces, but no name in the street is the answer. So in some ways, Baldwin has to bear witness in such a way to pick up the pieces so that we can push the boulder up the hill again. I, I use that Sisyphean image for a reason, right? So I think he has to confront his trauma. He has to confront the wound because hope is invented every day, as he would put it in 1970, right? He has to figure out how to get up because he still has to deal with his children. He still has to deal with his, his with those with whom he loves. He still has to deal with the fact that we're here in the midst of this country being what it is, right? So, I mean, we could, we could flesh that out a bit, but let me get back to the point about the writing, I think. Um, this was, this book almost killed me. I almost didn't survive it. And I don't say that with, with any hint of hyperbole. I drank too much while I was writing it. Um, I was, um, I was self-absorbed while I was writing it. I really concentrate, you know, Baldwin threw me back onto myself in a way that I, none of my previous works had done. Because he's an exacting companion, mm -hmm. right? Requiring that one examines the scaffolding of one's own lives. And so I had to deal with the vulnerable, you know, the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy with daddy issues <laughs> as a precondition to put anything on the page because Baldwin believes in that Socratic dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. And he translates that in terms of the kind of social criticism that he engages in, that the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. Mm -hmm. And so as I was engaging in this kind of self-reflection, self right, dealing with my own wound and my own trauma, suddenly the sentences started to jump off the page. It's almost as if I was liberated uh, to write what I was feeling, where the sentences, the choice of predicate, right, the reach for description came from uh, a place that not only had everything to do with, I'm going to free myself up to be the writer that I imagine myself actually being, um, but the sentences felt more authentic as if Jimmy was demanding it of me, right? And so, in Democracy in Black, and I want, I'm going to be shorter with my answers, Melvin, I promise. In Democracy in Black, what we were trying to do in that book was to figure out how to, how to, to deal with very complex uh, formulations without having to perform uh, the conversation that is being had. So those of you who knew your Dewey, who knew your Aristotle, knew what was going on behind the scenes when I talked about habit and the way in which I was rendering the notion of the value gap. It's my way of translating Dewey's notion of valuation and what I was doing. And so there was all of this stuff happening in the background that I didn't want to bring to the fore because I, you know, I didn't want it to get in the way. I didn't right. need to perform that, that academic exercise. And that laid the foundation for this kind of writing, right? So I could do all the stuff around historiography. I could do all this stuff uh, about uh, uh, 
around how I'm reading Jimmy, because I'm making an intervention in Baldwin studies with the book as well, without having to engage in internecine warfare. As, you know, where you have to tell people who you're arguing with and why they're wrong and all this other stuff. All of that freed me up to, 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 um, to reach for the sentences that I felt best captured what I was trying to get on the page. Mm -hmm. And it required that I trust myself, um, that I had paid the price of the ticket that allowed me to do that. And, and it was liberating, even though I was probably drinking too much Jameson. <laughs> that was the real liberation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I um no, that's 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 I mean that's really that's really helpful. Um uh I mean there's a way in which um you know there's a way in which you know Baldwin um well I'll say it this way. When you you know, for those who sort of work on Baldwin, who read Baldwin. And then you try to write, um, you immediately find yourself uh, trying to perform Baldwin on paper. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Yeah. I, and, but the reason is because um, um, in your own mind, Baldwin has captured um, very clearly right, what you yourself are now trying to engage in. And I sort of like this idea of of you and, and Baldwin uh, in partnership, yeah. right? sort of sort of walking together um, as you sort of glean from his moment insights for our own. And one of the things that I think um, that, I, that I find so striking about Baldwin's ascendancy in this present moment, I mean, this is a period um, in which the problems of institutions and processes uh, are the target. Um, whether we're talking about capitalism, whether we're talking about um, uh, the machinery of democratic government, um, what we most find ourselves talking about are the sort of institutional uh, machinations, as it were, um, and we find ourselves talking about process and procedure. And that has an important place. But one of the things that I found so striking about Baldwin is that, and Baldwin has those moments in his writing, but, but more often than not, it is the moral critique exactly. that Baldwin advances. And that that moral critique is about who we take ourselves to be. Exactly. Right? The, the sort of myths that we tell ourselves, um, you know, the, the sort of lies that we offer up, all of these things that we think we cannot get on about the business of living without um, telling ourselves these things as it were. So, so, so Eddie, talk a bit more about the significance and the importance in this moment of the moral critique. Why is it that Baldwin was always uh, drawn to talking about us um, rather than talking about how more often than not how our institutions sort of replicate, for example, racism and discrimination and these kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really great question because it seems to me the stakes 
you know, the heart of the matter is who do we take ourselves to be? Who do we aspire to be? You know, and, you know, his critique of, of Black Power is that they, you know, all of this talk of Black Power loses sight of the moral question. Right. Which, in the, which at the end of the day is who do we take ourselves to be? And in democracy and Black, at the heart of the value gap is that the value gap and the habits that sustain it is that it distorts our character. We can't be the kinds of people that democracy requires precisely because, right, some folk are committed to this view that because of the color of your skin, you ought to be valued more than others. And that commitment distorts and disfigures who we take ourselves to be. It distorts and disfigures our social and political and economic arrangements, mm. right? And then we tell lies to protect it all, to protect our innocence in that regard. So uh, you pull that thread in to begin again, and then you place it within the context of Jimmy. And Jimmy's point is that, you know, again, the world is a reflection of us. Right, all of this is a reflection of, of the truths that we're seeking to evade. Right, our refusal to look ourselves squarely in the mirror. Right, that 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 white America refuses to come to terms with what it has done. And because of that refusal, right, it is permanently docked at the station. They can't imagine themselves otherwise. They're caught, they're trapped. I mean, this is why he's so attracted to the ambassadors by Henry James, right? Mm -hmm. It's the fact that we can't see each other. What gets in the way of us seeing the fullness of the humanity of the person in front of us? What blocks the way of understanding that suffering is the bridge, as he argues in the artist's struggle for integrity, right? So part of, I think, this moral question is at the heart of the matter. And you, as you put it earlier, if we don't get ourselves right, no matter what the institutions are, right? They're going to reflect, right? Who we actually are, mm. you know? We're going to step inside them and the detritus that's inside us will make itself known inevitably, it seems to me. And, you know, I was thinking about what you said earlier too about writing with Jimmy. And, and you know, one of the things that's so hard um, uh, about writing, you know, I didn't want to, him to run me over like a beer can in the street, you know, just yeah. damn, right? So, so part of what I had to do was to be confident enough in my own voice. And I remember this moment in an exchange between him and Nikki Giovanni. And it was a free, a freeing moment, Melvin. Mm -hmm. It was like this moment where Nikki, he was telling, talking to Nikki Giovanni and he was talking about what we have to do when we go out to right. work and blah, blah, blah. And then she, she, she says, when you come home, lie to me. And he and 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 Baldwin looks confused. He's flabbergasted by the claim. Lie to me. You're lying to him, but I have to take all the stuff that you're doing. And that moment, she's brash. She's young. Baldwin's generosity allows her the space to be this way in some ways, right? But Nikki Giovanni is in the fullness of who she is in that moment. And there's a confidence. And she's telling Jimmy, you're wrong, lie to me. And I felt so liberated in that moment um, uh, to be able to tell him, you know, uh, you're wrong here. To risk myself uh, uh, to write, you know, to write a paragraph after I quote a paragraph of his. Right, right. It was one of the scariest moments on the page, you know. That sort of thing, yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm trying to connect it to Yeah, you. no, no, but I, I mean, I think in some sense, I mean, what is the point? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, 
the point is to sort of deploy these figures as we grapple um, with our own crises, um, exactly. rather than engaging in, um, uh, um, you know, a, a sort of process of intellectual adoration, um, in which it really just becomes a matter of uh, merely trying to get the thinker right and not trying to put them in the service. Uh, which at the end of the day, especially for Baldwin, was the reason why he was writing to begin with, um, to be of use, right? Um, as, he, as he sort of bore witness to the, to the sort of horror of, uh, of, a, of American life. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, but, but, I mean, one of the things I keep, I keep thinking though, um, and I keep, you know, wondering about is, the sort of status in Baldwin in 72 mm. of, of, sort of, of sort of hoping and struggling in the face of what appears to be likely disappointments that will come from his white counterparts and the ways in which that, that recognition can't help but leave one suspicious of your white counterparts, mm -hmm. even when they claim to sort of act in the name of racial justice and genuine democracy. Yeah. And so there's a way in which, you know, I, so I read No Name as a recognition of, or Baldwin recognizing the stain over everything, mm -hmm. even in those moments when we claim to be responding to mm -hmm. right, racial inequality and the horror that it has created. Because mm -hmm. those moments can't even get off the ground without referencing the past that has given life to the present moment, right? right. And so there's right. a way in which that past um, uh, is all over everything. Mm -hmm. And that, and so then, and so, you know, uh, you know, for me, Baldwin then, is trying to uh, sort of get us to see what does it mean to be uh, a responsible and caring citizen in the face of that acknowledgement that for black folks, um, uh, they were once property um, and they're still looked at as being, as belonging to someone else, as being owned by someone else. And that for white folks, um, they were either the cause of or complicit in by virtue of their silence right? yeah. uh, in this yeah. process. And so that even in our present moment, when we try to respond to that, to that sort of history, um, we can only do so by recognizing the ways in which we're still bound to it. And that can't help but generate Or, or for Baldwin, that should generate on the side of white folks doubt in what their efforts are doing and in black folks uh, suspicion that those efforts are actually responding to the problem at issue. And that we just yeah. have, we have to make our peace with that relationship that we now have, that we've always had. Yeah, I mean, there, there are moments in the text where you feel that when, 
in the 7,000 pages of his writing, there, there are moments when you feel that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that view could easily be assimilated into a kind of Afro-pessimist view very, very, very quickly, right? Uh, if I'm understanding you correctly. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I think in the midst of, even in the midst of the description that you, that you offer, there's always in, in Baldwin this belief in the possibility of a new Jerusalem. Mm. And it comes out of that passage you read, right? Coming off the, the King, the King uh, quote, you know, we're at, human beings are at once disasters and miracles. We have to protect ourselves from the disasters that we've become, right? But he still insists on the fact that we can be miracles, that we can do miraculous things. Mm. And it's this kind of abiding faith in the capacity of human beings to be otherwise. Right, that gives him some basis for hoping. Right, so he 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 would believe. Of course, he I think he makes a distinction in the evidence of things not seen between white people and people who happen to be white. Mm -hmm. Right, so white people, though you know, it's like Toni Morrison and Beloved. White people becomes one word. Right, it's whiteness is not a modifier. It's an ontological state in some ways. Right, and so so those people who are committed to the value gap as an essential way of understanding themselves, who are committed to the idea that advantage and disadvantage ought to be distributed along the lines of who's valued more and who's valued less. Uh, Baldwin understands those folks for who they are, mm -hmm. but then there are those folks who are in, engaged in the ongoing work of deconstructing the very ways in which whiteness comes to them like language, who are trying desperately to, to undo this work even as they fall short over and over again. And it's those folks who are committed to such a world, right, that he's willing to bank his all on in, in solidarity with as we reach for New Jerusalem. But it's not naive. It's never naive. I think what's so striking about the Baldwin that I write about or write with, um, it's the revolutionary inversion is still present. Mm -hmm. When Baldwin flips that script and says the problem ain't us, never has been. I've never been the N-word. You need to ask yourself, why did you need it in the first place? And until you figure that out, I'm going to give the N-word back to you, baby. Who's mm -hmm. really the N-word, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that radical inversion, right? The, the inversion of Kipling's white man's burden, mm -hmm. right? And then he tells his nephew, well, you know, dear brother, you know, the strange thing is that we have to love them so that they can see themselves. In some ways, it's a practical gesture, right? Until these folk come to a better understanding of themselves, we have to bear the burden of, you know, their monstrous behavior. So we have to try to help them see themselves in a bigger, in a more expansive way. But by the time we get to King's assassination, Baldwin gives up on that later task. Mm -hmm. It's not our task to try to convince those who are committed to the value gap, those who are committed to whiteness, to be otherwise. Instead, our task is, as I write in the book, to, is to spend all of our energy as best as we can trying to build a new Jerusalem where those sorts of commitments have no quarter to breathe. Right, right, right. So I agree with your, so in, in, to, to put it succinctly, I agree with your general description, but there is this sense that Baldwin holds out of faith in our capacity to imagine ourselves differently. Not necessarily to do so apart from the history that shadows us, that we carry with us. Right. 
But as he says, we have to pass through that history to see what it has made of us, hmm. right? It's like Marx saying, we got to go through class in order to get beyond it. Jimmy is insisting that we have to go through this moment. And we still, we still seem to be in history's ass pocket right now. We still have to go through it. And then we have to kind of assess where are we hmm. once we get to the other side, if we ever do. Right. So, the, so look, this raises a number of things for me. Um, um, okay. And I guess Nick will tell us where we are with time, but this raises a number of things for me. So the, the first bit is um, when you move through it, you don't come out whole on the other side for Baldwin. No. And there are these bits and pieces. We have to figure out how we're going to organize them. And even when we organize them, um, they sort of carry the gook right? The, 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 the mess, right? And I often read Baldwin on this as sort of, sort of measuring the sort of measuring the quality of an American democratic citizen by our ongoing responsiveness to how that mess reappears. So in other words, the idea of the New Jerusalem for him Right? There's an idea of that, but there's also the idea of how you keep it. Not, not only how you get there, but how you keep it. And how you keep it, it seems to me, is about uh, um, a responsiveness to the ways in which that past are always threatening to reveal itself again, to come back mm -hmm. in and to wreck the moral universe that mm -hmm. you inhabit. Right? That's sort of the, so that's, that's sort of the first thing. And, I, and, and my thought is, is that this kind of responsiveness um, makes demands on black and white folks in different ways. Mm -hmm. right? Black folks that, in the sense that um, um, they don't simply sort of um, uh, take the word of their white counterparts about mm -hmm. right, what they plan to do um, as truth. And that, for, and that for white Americans, insofar as they take themselves to be trying to respond to uh, the mess, they never become, they ought not to become congratulatory. Oh, no. yeah. Because both, in, in doing both from both sides, we may find ourselves um, lapsing back into a story mm -hmm. about the progressive character of America, right? Yeah. And so then yeah. the guard against that lapse, because Baldwin knows we have a love affair with our progress stories, right? We love Indeed. to know. And so the guard Indeed. against that, there's a way in which we're sort of looking forward, but always keeping our eye on how the past is, in, is sort of encroaching, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that kind of story can easily be caught up in the, in the kind of Afro-pessimism. But I think that there's a way in which, as I'm suggesting, that Baldwin seems to both want to sort of acknowledge the, the darkness of what we now call a kind of Afro-pessimism, um, while, while pre preventing it, as you suggest, from its sort of, uh, sort of uh, capturing um, and stifling our energies. I think that's sort of the, that's sort of how I would want to render it. I think that's right. You know, and one way to put it is that's what that's what maturity entails. Yeah, yeah, that's the. I guess I could have said it in one sentence like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Right, right. Yeah. So there's at the heart of that description, though, Melvin, is this idea of the adolescent nature of this mm. place. The very idea that the heart of the American project is this fall from innocence or this desire to return to innocence. You know, Baldwin will insist that 
you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta leave youth behind to reach for wisdom. I love that formulation, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense in which America's, you know, America feels like, you know, never, never land, right? This place populated by lost boys and lost girls who refuse uh, to, to, um, to accept responsibility or to be held accountable. That's what makes Never Neverland uh, unique in some mm -hmm. ways, right? And so America wants to imagine itself as the shining city on the hill and not be accountable for what it has wrought in the world. Uh, and so Baldwin wants to say a certain kind of maturation. I don't want to say he wants to say, he says it. Mm -hmm. As I read him, a kind of maturation involves, right, an acknowledgement, a reckoning with what you've done with who you are, mm -hmm. right? We can't reach for the sense of community that we aspire to hold or have uh, if we do not, as he put it in one place, confront our ghastly failures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think he's, he's constantly saying, calling the nation to grow up, to leave behind the swaddling clothes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and in part that involves, in part that involves coming to terms with me. Right, right. Come into terms with us, right? Because we're the mirror, right? Uh, uh, in some ways, right? Um, and when I say we, I mean all those who have been othered because of this idolatrous embrace of life. Mm. Now, so Eddie, how does that that sort of story about? But because you, and here I want to I want to I want to bring this out. I want you to talk about this, this this sort of this sort of logic and problem of immaturity. Um, how do we see that in our present moment, in our dealings, and our rendering of the person that occupies the White House, Donald Trump? Uh. <laughs> right? Because it seems to me that there's something of this story about our immaturity that is being deployed um, in the way we sort of render and uh, try to explain the emergence of uh, of Donald Trump. And in the book, there's a way in which you sort of shadow the story um, by sort of connecting the line of Trump um, to someone, you, you know, most folks would never think of. Um, and we think it's actually Athema that you would want to connect these two, even in a Republican party, but the figure of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, you know, I think Reagan is, is you know, remember when Reagan ran in 79 and 80, People thought he was, you know, crazy. They were, they were thinking, you know, this is, this is Barry Goldwater-esque. He's going to cause World War III. H. George H.W. Bush described his economic philosophy as voodoo economics. They thought if he was elected, the country would collapse. Um, so, the, the, so first of all, we have to dispel the way in which this figure comes to us today. Right. And Black America understood him for who he was. I mean, most, most Black activists in particular viewed Ronald Reagan as notorious as George Wallace. Mm. He's the governor of California during the repression of the Black Panther Party. He's the governor that, 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 that in some ways um, harasses and harangues Angela Davis. He's the governor of out West who uh, create, creates the condition for the, for the tax revolt, right? Um, you know, so, so, so the tax revolt that led in some ways to the shredding of the social safety net uh, that was such a part of the, of the New Deal. Donald Trump 
I mean, Ronald Reagan, see the Freudian slip, right, <laughs> is an avatar of a particular kind of politics that seeks to, in some ways, undo what the civil rights movement was all about. Jimmy said, I saw him in California. He despised poor people. He hated poor people. And this is the person they reached for in the aftermath of Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Act of 68, the last major piece of legislation of the great society. And then they elect Nixon in 68, law and order. 72, he betrays them, but they reelect him before he betrays them. And then Ronald Reagan is the culmination of the fantasy to resist, right, the wholesale inclusion of these former, these former slaves, these second class citizens into the body politic. He represents a reassertion of the fantasy that America is a white nation in the vein of old Europe, a B-list actor. Mm. Hollywood becomes the way to, to reassert right, this particular understanding of the country. And we need to understand too that he mobilized white grievance and white fear and white resentment very carefully and strategically. Um, and so I see a straight line from him to Donald Trump. Outside of Donald, Donald Trump is like a caricature mm. of it all. You know, exaggerated head and, and exaggerated hands, no joke intended. Uh, you know, he's a caricature of this strand of American politics that has overdetermined how we see the public good or how we fail to see it in this moment. When we look at Donald Trump at the level of policy, deregulation, tax cuts, um, uh, the way in which he, 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 he wants to stack the courts in order to right, pursue uh, deregulation to secure pharmaceuticals having a hold over, over, the, over the healthcare system. None of it is new. The way in which they talk about voter suppression, none of it's new. It's just he does it very badly. Right, right. Yeah. And so I think the, to tell the story of Donald Trump, Melvin, through the lineage of the demagogues, of the obvious villains, is to let the other folk off the hook. Right. You know, I think that's, and this is what I, I, I'm really struck when I, when I see Jimmy talking about Reagan, you know, I see him spying Donald Trump on the horizon, mm. you know, and he was so right. All right, all right. I mean, of course, though, in kind of the historical, in kind of the sort of public historical imagination, uh, that's not the Ronald Reagan we get. No. The one, right, that's not, and so and so. Of course, there's a there's sort of a a, a sort of um, uh, uh, a kind of reconstruction in the in the sort of public historical imagination of Ronald Reagan, um, which is itself a function of of what Baldwin was identifying and our preoccupation with mature, immaturity, um, right, and um, the ways in which we need to. Um, tell ourselves lies and myths uh, as a way to, um, to sort of shield our innocence. And with, that, yeah. and with that in place, then we're able to sort of tell a story about how Trump now looks anomalous. And so part of, but, but one of the things that that reveals then about the book is that the way in which the book itself, yes, is about James Baldwin, and yes, it's about you in our present time, 
Um, but there's a way in which it sort of re-narrates and uncovers um, a history. And this is not to say that there's not, you know, other sort of historians that are right, um, or historians who have written, but there's a way in which it uncovers it um, uh, and makes it um, accessible um, for, uh, for the reader. Right, um, yeah. and it's and it's a way of performing the very thing that you and, and Baldwin both, uh, the way both of you are asking us to uh, uh, to do, which is to bear witness to your history. Yeah, yeah. right. Not not the not not the right rose colored version of this, um, but the true uh, the true history. And of course, in this regard, the true history. It's not just simply um, some kind of objective account of the truth. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, exactly. It is a way of telling history that is sort of making choices and the course of making choices is saying, I want you to look here rather than there. Exactly. Um, um, I want you to see over there rather than, you know, what folks have sort of put up to, um, uh, uh, to sort of capture your, your attention. So, so it's actually a way of getting us to um, properly attend yeah. to you know, that. You know, the book is, was, I, I didn't, you know, I'll tell you this story when I, and I don't know when they're going to, the students are going to ask questions or, you know, because we'll right, talk right. Until, the, until the time goes out. Uh, uh, but let me just say this really quickly. You know, when I first gave, uh, I, Michael Thelwell, the, the mm -hmm. African-American studies professor at University of Massachusetts Amherst, I gave him the first four chapters of the book early, early stage of the chapter. And Michael Thelwell is this Jamaican and he's harsh. You know, he doesn't, he's straight, no chases. So I give him the, the chapters and he, I walk into the house. I drove up to Amherst, I mean, to Amherst and um, went to his home. And he says, Glaude, I thought you were intelligent. This doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> and I gave it to my editor and all this other stuff, right? And so part of what they did, so I had to write the introduction in order for folks to make sense of the book. Right. And so part of what I've been trying to do, what I try to do is to figure out a way of writing that can capture history, that could capture biography, that can capture literary criticism and social criticism. And visually, the method, actually, I describe it in the book when I'm in the Legacy Museum. Mm. And the Legacy Museum is, is, is try, tries to be a narrative museum, but the way it's, which is organized spatially, you can disrupt it. So as I'm in the Legacy Museum, I move to the middle. And what do I do when I'm in the middle of the museum? I hear all of this stuff. So I hear the sounds of King's voice. I hear the sounds of, of the beatings on the Selma march. I hear the students talking about the string of court cases that the, around race. I'm hearing and seeing all of this. And then I say, this is the cacophonous song of America riffing on Whitman. And so that becomes the kind of visual metaphor for what I'm trying to do in the book. I occupy a space and then it's by way of my perceiving and perception and writing that I'm able to bring into view certain things that then bring in, into view other things. And, and, and so this is how I navigate it. I see Nick just showed up in, in the right, streams. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense though? No, As, no, that's, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Hi, Nick. All right. Well, um, thank you guys. That was that was fantastic, and we'll we'll keep the conversation going. Um, I just want to remind everyone uh, as we transition to to Q and A uh, with the audience uh, that in the chat, the chat function on your Zoom, um, there is a 
link to uh, to Google Slides where you can just type your question in. I checked it out. It it works. So um, while you are uh, sending your questions in there, and Pedro will will uh, will moderate the Q and A. Um, I will ask the first question. While all these, I see so many great students and alums uh, here in the in the Zoom room. So I know you'll have a lot of great questions for Melvin and Eddie. So please uh, go into that those Google Slides and just type your questions there. Um, but while you're doing that, I'll I'll uh, I will take a moderator's prerogative and ask the first question um, <laughs> and give everybody a minute to to generate their questions. Um, so, so Eddie, uh, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, this remarkable document, artifact, that is in the Schomburg. Um, and I'm sure your experience was much like mine when you came across it, where you just about fell out of your chair. And you describe it so beautifully in the introduction uh, to begin again. Um, and so I will, I will cite it here. I have my, my begin again. So this is right in the introduction in, on uh, page 20 to 21. You describe Baldwin as handwritten note that uh, Baldwin kept the copy of in his papers that are at the Schomburg in Harlem. This handwritten note that Baldwin wrote to Robert Kennedy after John F. Kennedy was killed. Right. So this is this amazing document in Baldwin's hand, uh, and he says many things. And, and Eddie describes, uh, you know, um, in the book, Baldwin and Robert Kennedy had a uh, a fraught history. Um, it was that the, that fraud, to put it mildly, a fraud history that was, you know, really the, the moment that was most fraught was this famous meeting they had in May 1963 in the midst of the Birmingham campaign. Um, and, and it's in the aftermath of that meeting. Uh, you can watch the Kenneth Clark interview. Everyone can pull that up on YouTube after we're done tonight. And it's one of the most powerful, uh, powerful moments where Baldwin is, is describing the, the apathy, right, the death of the heart of his fellow countrymen. And when he is saying that, he is talking about Robert Kennedy, right? So it's this amazing, you know, this, this really fraught relationship. But then Baldwin writes him this letter, right? Only a few months later. Uh, and he says, among other things, and Eddie quotes here, to Robert Kennedy after John's been shot, whatever may have blocked your understanding of what we tried to tell you of our suffering is dissolved by suffering. And we beg you to allow us to share your grief. As we know that in these trying days to come, you share our struggle, for our struggle is the same. Hmm. There's so much going on there, but I, I wonder, Eddie, if you could say a little bit about, uh, you talked, you know, uh, you concluded the conversation with Melvin a little bit about, you know, sort of Baldwin's lens and looking at the American right. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about Baldwin's lens and looking at the kind of, you know, American left or the kind of white progressive that's embodied in this figure, this icon Robert Kennedy and, and kind of what Baldwin has to teach us in this moment and our own fraught moment of, of forming alliances and coalitions uh, to pursue justice, what you learn from Baldwin and sort of thinking through that relationship that is, you know, captured so beautifully in that, that letter Baldwin wrote to Kennedy. You know, there are a couple of things, right? So the first, the first thing is, is, you know, Baldwin's insistence that the suffering is the bridge Right, Bobby Kennedy is grieving the loss of his his brother, the the murder of his brother, uh, and and Baldwin in this moment is trying to get him to see that that his grief emanates from from a similar space of human beings trying to make sense of the journey from womb to tomb, and how that journey is fraught, fitful often cruel, marked by barbarity, 
Um, and, and in that sense of our struggle is the same, it involves not just simply a kind of struggle around, right, a struggle against those forces uh, committed to segregation and racism uh, or Jim Crow that, that, that apparently were uh, arrayed uh, not only against, um, not apparently, were arrayed against Black folk, but also uh, were part of the motivation for the assassination of, 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 of John F. Kennedy. But this, this arduous task of living in the face of it all, you know, in the face of the mess, you know? And so, so there, there is a sense in which he's trying to open Bobby Kennedy's eyes to the connection, to, to the humanity of, of, of us, that the suffering you feel, we feel, that the cruelty and barbarity you've experienced, we've experienced, and that ought to be the basis of the connection. And once we ground it in that, Nick, if I'm understanding the question correctly, then we're outside of charitable enterprises. We're outside of philanthropic gestures. It's not anything that you can give me, right? In the name of equality and freedom and the like, right? Um, it's, it's where you're seeing the fullness of, of, of the human being right in front of you. And there's this line, right, that, that, um, that comes from the artist's struggles for integrity that, that echoes that formulation to, 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 um, to, to, um, to Kennedy. And he's talking about, you know, the rejection. You survived this and in some terrible way, which I suppose no one can ever describe. You are compelled, you are corralled, you are bullwhipped into dealing with whatever it is that hurts you. And what is crucial here is that if it hurts you, that is not what's important. Everybody's hurt, everybody's hurt. What's important, what corrals you, what bullwhips you, what drives you, torments you, is that you must find some way of using this to connect you with everyone else alive. Mm -hmm. This is all you have to do with it. You must understand that your pain is trivial, except insofar as you can use it to connect with other people's pain. And insofar as you can do that with your pain, you can be released from it and then hopefully it works the other way around too. Insofar as I can tell you what it is to suffer, perhaps I can help you suffer less. The suffering becomes the bridge. It becomes the basis of salvation, right? As he would echo in To Crush a Serpent. You see what I mean? And that is a very different relationship than the kind of white liberals philanthropic embrace of, of the notion of racial inequality. Someone who wants to do something for me as opposed to someone who wants to do something with me. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, uh, Melvin, do you want to jump in, or you, should we go to Pedro? Pe well, let's go. Uh, to hard to hard to put <laughs> onto that. That was beautiful, uh, Pedro. You keep, you see, I keep reaching for books behind me. I'll stop. I love no it. Problem. I love it. I love it. No, I love it. Okay, let's make sure. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Mm -hmm. The first question that we have says, a classic narrative is that America, despite its flaws, is making slow and steady progress towards solving its racial problems. Are we in fact making progress as a country or are we at risk of stalling or going backwards? What do you think, Melvin, uh, Professor Rogers? I mean, just, um, no, that, that's not you. I, th I think that, right, this is, this is the way we always want to render it. Um, I appreciate the question, um, but this is the way we always want to render it. Are we going forward? Are we going back? 
Um, and part of what uh, Baldwin is trying to uh, get us to see is the way things are folding back in on itself. Um, and what he's trying to get us to sort of focus on is the quality of our responsiveness. Mm. Quality of our responsiveness. Mm. Because there is a way in which even for Baldwin, as I said earlier when I was asking Eddie the question, even the affirmative responses only make sense against the light of, against the backdrop of these harms that have taken place. Um, and in that way, then the past, right, um, the sort of past lives in, uh, in, in, in the present moment, right? Um, and, that, and, and so then the story of forward and backward uh, doesn't really make much sense. Uh, on 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 Baldwin's on Baldwin's view, you know Baldwin has that line where he says America is always changing and America never changes. Mm -hmm. It's almost you know Amir Barak is changing saying, right? There's something consistent about this place, right? And in some ways, the narrative of progress is is one of the things that's so consistent, right? right. And he wouldn't want us to not look at the sort of um, the sort of measurables, as it were, right? no, you, you right. still would focus on the measurables, but the but the question is what we infer from the measurables, right? Or what do we infer from um, uh, x amount of black folks in college, or uh, you know, uh, you know, x amount of black folks graduating from high school, uh, x amount of black folks, um, uh, you know, um, making this amount of money? What what are we inferring from? <laughs> And the seduction is to do exactly right what Eddie just sort of performed for us, right? We sort of give ourselves a congratulatory uh, a pat, and the sense of um, the sense of you know how does the boy the sense of the present past uh, to invoke Du Bois's language from the second chapter of Souls of Black Folk, the sense of that um, is obscured altogether, all right? And mm -hmm. so in some ways. Um, given the kind of country that we are in our history, um, Baldwin uh, wants us to dispense. He wants, to let, he wants us to let go of this sort of preoccupation with um, forward, backward movement, even as that is our sort of natural propensity and desire to want to say, well, we made some progress here, right? Mm -hmm. The next question, continuing this trend of operationalization and questions about measurements. How do you define blackness now to how Baldwin have might define it in his writing and how has this definition changed? I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's one way to define blackness, of course, is, is, is to use Du Bois's definition in Souls of Black Folk, right? And that is, right, one knows blackness by just simply looking at the back of a Jim Crow car. And to extend that definition is to say that blackness um, uh, is uh, an indicator of, 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 of being susceptible to a certain kind of precarity, a kind of premature death, as it were. But that's too narrow. Right. But these are categories that allow us to to uh, categorize human beings in such a way to attribute meaning to lives that may very well obscure uh, the, the particular human beings in front of us. But blackness in the context of, of, of the US is still mobilized, right? Um, in such a way to, 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 to 
um, to, to, to rationalize a certain justification, to rationalize a certain distribution of advantage and disadvantage. Melvin, what do you think about how to answer that question? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the things um, that Baldwin and, and you sort of talk about this in The Reckoning, that Baldwin is very mindful of is the ease with which we sort of slip into um, a, a kind of fix and kind of determinate conception of what Blackness means. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in one sense, it partly makes sense, uh, given the onslaught um, of uh, sort of various institutional forms of, of white supremacy, you sort of want to find a basis around which you can sort of fortify your, your identity. And one way of doing it is to simply say, um, um, you know, um, uh, if you want to know what blackness is, um, uh, let's pay attention to those who more often than not are treated in one way rather than another. Um, right. <laughs> um, and, and, and then all of a sudden you'll see um, uh, an idea of persons consolidating around that conception. Of course, that idea of, of, uh, of blackness turns out to be a kind of pragmatic response to the environment that you're encountering. So we all have complicated identities, but there's something about the environment that's calling something to the foreground while other features are pushed to the background. And that becomes the basis around which we uh, organize. But, and, and I would say that that approach uh, unites our present moment um, to uh, Baldwin's moment and unites Baldwin's moment to let's say the 1830s, right? But, but there's, a, but there's a, a, a slippage that often happens in how we talk about blackness um, in which blackness entails a way of being in the world. I mean, we know this kind of story of, a, uh, of essentialism, but it's not just simply a way of being in the world, but a way of performing politics of performing activism. If you don't perform that, right, then somehow um, you sort of fail the test. You're not invited to the barbecue. Um, and we see that today. And so as much as Baldwin, for example, in his own time would stand with uh, Black Power, he also wanted to sort of resist and encourage that others resist that, that, that tendency. Yeah, what he called that mystical Black bullshit, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The next question that we have, that we have, sorry, is directed towards Dr. Rogers. It says, in your article, we should be afraid, but not of protesters. You say, open quote, we don't yet know if the United States is convulsing because it wishes to be something new and better, but is raging to remain something old and twisted. Do you believe that the U.S. is coming to a turning point where it could go either good or bad? Or do you think that this will be a constant struggle with race relations in the U.S.? because of the nature of people and politics? Well, you know, I mean, this is a, uh, and Eddie, you should get in on this. I mean, we're at an inflection point, you know, Eddie, you know, you know, my sense is that we have the book, but, you know, given that you're on TV like every day, um, <laughs> and just everything is sort of, right, moving uh, sort of across your table so quickly. Um, I think you have some thoughts about this, but but my sense is that this is an inflection point. Sometimes I think to myself, oh, will this be like, you know, the 70s and will things then peter out? Um, you know, will we see the embers, but we'll find some kind of uh, perverse, right, normalcy. Um, but then I think, and then I wonder if folks thought, made this move, um, but then I think, it feels different to me. 
Um, you know, but maybe I say that because, you know, I was born in 77 and so I wasn't really in the thick of it. <laughs> and so um, now I'm in the thicket of it and living it and reading it. And, and now I'm describing it, you know, so it feels, it feels different to me. It feels like this is a moment in which we could gain so much or lose everything. Yeah, and there's no guarantee. Yeah. That's the thing. I think that, you know, going back to something you brought up in our conversation, you know, going back to the fact that we're miracles and disasters. So there's no guarantee of the outcome. Mm. I think what's different, of course, is COVID-19, the economic collapse, um, the collapse of democratic institutions and the like, the fact that people are risking their lives because it seems like we're all vulnerable at this moment. But there's no guarantee what the, out, what the outcome will be. Um, our only hope is that we show up. Mm. Because wherever human beings are, we have a chance, at right. least. Yeah, at least. <laughs> <laughs> the next question is, an issue in the Black Lives Matter movement is a misinterpretation of the message, the question asker says. For white rural Americans, it has turned into an us versus them. Do you either think we now need a central voice such as MLK, or do we need a different solution to gain better traction, says the person asking the question? No, I think what I think is that we need good faith in our politics. I think that's that's what that's what we need. We need a kind of honesty in our politics in some ways. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is often misread. And I'll say this really quickly, that is Black Lives Matter should be read, I think, in the same vein as Black Power. And I don't mean that it has the same politics. What I mean is Black Power isn't reducible to one form of politics. Mm -hmm. Black Power is a slogan, a sentiment that captures a, a particular moment in time, a certain kind of, of, of political emotion that is being expressed in very different ways. So what falls under the rubric of black power could be the you know, Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. Mm -hmm. It could be Kwanzaa with Karinga's Us movement. It could be you know, Pan-Africanist and the range of folks, right? So black, black power isn't any one politics with any one leader. It's, it's, it's a rubric under which a number of different political iterations fall. And Black Lives Matter in some ways functions in the same way. You know, so what DeRay McKesson and, and Brittany Paquette or Paquette are doing is very different than what the movement for Black Lives are doing, which is not the same as what Dream Defenders are doing. So Black Lives Matter, it seems to me, is a kind of slogan, a sentiment under which a number of different political orientations or, 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 or articulations are expressed. And, and the desire for Martin Luther King Jr. Is, is a misplaced desire, right? I, I wish somebody would desire for uh, a broad democratic politics that informs and embraces the capacity of everyday ordinary people to be the leaders they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next question that we have says, to what extent can the presidency solve America's racial problems? Do presidents play a major role in affecting change or do we estimate, overestimate their ability? I'll give that to the political theorist. Um, no, um, no, they can't. I mean, they can sort of, you know, um, uh, get behind um, 
uh, and advance important initiatives, great society uh, kind of stuff, uh, New Deal kind of stuff, although there's an issue about Black folks' inclusion in that, but get behind great initiatives that, that, right, that the downstream effect could, uh, if initiatives are properly structured, benefit the life chances of Black folks. Um, uh, but, the, but the question of racial disregard that sits at the heart of the nation uh, exists in excess of the institutions um, uh, that we have. Um, and, and so uh, while I think that the, that the presidency can be an important force, as we see, right, um, uh, fomenting um, um, and ginning up uh, uh, sort of racial conflict and, and the like, um, and, and could be a positive uh, force, I think that, it, that, the, that, that the sort of think in the sort of narrow terms of the presidency is in fact to be very, conf well, is to be misled um, by our own sort of historical and philosophical seduction with the great leader. Mm. Right? Mm. And that, of course, this relates to Eddie's earlier point, right? Um, and that's not just us, right? Um, that's sort of the Western imaginary, right? We just sort of, um, um, the imaginary I know the most, um, right, we're, we're sort of right, we're seduced um, and constantly in search of, of, the, of the great leader, uh, of the one who can sort of stand and, and, and sort of stand between us um, uh, and the darkness right uh, beyond the horizon. I mean, this is in some sense, one of the responses that we see right, um, uh, in response to the, to the death of Justice Ginsburg, right? That, that now that she's gone, the gates are open. Well, in one sense, in one sense that is right. Um, that is to say, with respect to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, but, there, but the true source of power um, is always with us if we show up. Right? I think we have time for one more question. And this one states, states dealing with the idea of the figure of the rising power. This question asker is talking about the rise of right-wing populism in states across the globe. What do both of you think is the solution to this rise of right-wing populism? Or do you see that we're entering into an unpredictable time of division? And they also ask, how can young people make a difference in this process? Well, we're certainly entering into an unpredictable time of division. I think that's really important because what's being revealed is the bankruptcy of a political and economic ideology that has in some ways governed uh, uh, the world for the last 40 years. Mm. Neo, the contradictions of neoliberalism are in full view, however we might describe it, whether it's neoliberalism, Thatcherism, Reaganism, however we want to describe it, those contradictions are in full view where you had where you have the top 1%, the top 1% extracting resources, right? Uh, gating themselves away from everyday ordinary people. You have workers thrown into more precarity as they're working harder, longer for less with wages that barely keep their noses above water, uh, where you see policies of austerity that have contracted uh, uh, the kinds of goods that governments, can, that governments provide. Uh, where you see the transformation of citizens into self-interested persons in pursuit of their own aims and ends in competition and rivalry with others, such that you can't have a robust conception of the public good. And so 
in light of all of these elements, you see the collapse because people are busting their behinds and not making ends meet uh, as we are on the verge of having our first trillionaire, right? The world's first trillionaire. And so it's in the midst of that, that people are reaching or turning to populism as they're responding to the bankruptcy of a political and economic ideology that has reigned supreme. Now, some people are reaching for authoritarian fascist language. Others are reaching for progressive language. Some are trying to figure out how they can tinker with liberalism in the face of rampant capitalism. But China is showing folks that you don't have to be liberal and capitalist at the same time, right? So, so I think we're in this moment of, of intense flux. And let's be clear, young people are not apart from it. They are actually dead center. They are in it. They have been produced by it. And we're seeing young people, whether it's in Germany, uh, embracing right-wing fascist language, or whether it's in you know, Washington State or Oregon, we're seeing the same thing happen here. Um, so it is a time of flux. Um, there's no guarantee where we're going to end up, but we do know we have to fight. Mel? Mel? Professor Roger? I think we should stay with that. Yeah. I don't know how we could end on a, a better note. I mean, one of the things I, I really like about the tradition of Constitution Day is it's a, an opportunity to gather together uh, in, a, in an intentional way to deliberate about um, our responsibilities as citizens. And I think that everything that uh, Professor Glaw just said and, and many of the things that Melvin said earlier in the conversation uh, really you know, direct us toward this kind of radically democratic notion of, 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 uh, of our destiny, right? That, that, and that's certainly a Baldwinian, um, a Baldwinian lesson to be sure, is that Baldwin was always there uh, in, in these conversations about these big political questions, these big electoral moments, uh, to remind people that no matter what happens uh, at the next election, the responsibility that we have as citizens continues, uh, and it's every day. Uh, hope is born, you know, every day, as Eddie said earlier, but also our, our responsibility and our sense of what our responsibility is and reflecting on how we have to act on that responsibility in the world. That's absolutely crucial uh, to the Baldwin message and, and definitely a, a message that we need on this on this Constitution Day. So I want to, if we were all together in ice auditorium right now, there would be a rousing standing ovation for Eddie and Melvin. We can't do that on Zoom, which is one of the bummers about Zoom. But I know that we would uh, if we were all together. I just want to extend my thank you to, to Melvin and to Eddie for uh, just a really wonderful conversation and, and all the work that both of you are doing. Um, it's just so important. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for you. So thank you for, for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you in person when it's safe to do so. And thank all of you for being here and for your excellent questions. And on behalf of the website, yes, we would like to extend our gratitude to Dr. Rogers and Dr. Glor for visiting, and also to all of our members in the audience. We encourage you to continue following the events in our 2020 electoral, electoral series. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter in Linfield underscore, no, polls underscore IR, Linfield polls underscore IR, to continue watching for more events like these coming up. And again, yeah, Pedro, Pedro jumped in before I could say the most important thank you of all, which is to Pedro and Team Work Study, the best work study team on the planet uh, that make all this happen. So I'm so grateful to all the work that, that you do. So uh, thank you all and, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to a Pizza and Politics episode of Politox. We'll see you next time.